Thank you, Dave. I want to talk to you this morning out of Luke's Gospel, chapter 7, another one of Jesus' parables. If you notice the title that your notes this morning, Knowing What You Want and Wanting What You Know. The question is, what do we want? That's what I want to talk to you about. So look with me, verse 29, Luke chapter 7. Luke writes this parenthetical statement. He says, all the people, even the tax collectors, when they heard Jesus' words, acknowledged that God's way was right. Because they had been baptized by John. But the Pharisees and the experts in the law rejected God's purpose for themselves. Because they had not been baptized by John. And then Luke has Jesus' words. To what then can I compare the people of this generation? What are they like? They're like children sitting in the marketplace and calling out to each other. We played a flute for you and you did not dance. We sang a dirge and you did not cry. For John the Baptist came neither eating bread nor drinking wine and you say he has a demon. The Son of Man came eating and drinking, and you say, here is a glutton and a drunkard, a friend of tax collectors and sinners. But wisdom is proved right by all her children. I want to pose four questions to you for your consideration and also for discussion in many church this week. First question, what would you say is the purpose of your life? What would you say is the purpose of your life? Secondly, how would you define your ultimate purpose and your unique personal purpose? There's an ultimate overarching purpose for our life, and there's a unique personal purpose that's contained in that. Thirdly, if you were to die today, would you have accomplished the purpose for which you were born? Could you say with Paul, I have run the race. I have completed the course. And fourthly, how do you think God would answer these questions for each of us? So I want you to think about those. And we're going to work our way through the point of those questions. God has a primary purpose for all of us. And we all share this purpose in common. But he also has a secondary purpose for each individual. And the secondary purpose is part of his overarching primary purpose. I think it is vital for us to continually, on an ongoing basis, sharpen our focus. Would you agree? You always have to be coming back. There's always things that are going to knock us off our pins, so to speak. That are going to distract us. It's like sailing If you've ever done any sailing, you know the wind blows a different way. You know the currents cause the boat to go off course. You're always correcting course. 
So our lives are the same way. We, we have to be regularly correcting course, sharpening our focus, but sharpening our focus on what? I submit to you on our purpose. Sharpening our focus on our purpose. We want to be able to make sure that we have a sense and recapture the reason we were given life. If we're to experience life, and life to the full, as Jesus has called us to, he wants us to, you'll never do it unless you have in your mind an understanding of your purpose. Having that purpose allows you to prioritize your life, prioritize the opportunities and the challenges that come with everyday life. Does life bring us challenges? Yep. Every day. Opportunities? Every day. But if I don't have my priority correct, if I don't have my, my, my purpose in mind, then all of those opportunities and all of those priorities can easily be missed. When either our ultimate or unique purpose becomes clouded or becomes confused, we lose an essential quality of life. We lose our joy and zeal for life. Again, we're like a sailboat out on the ocean with no wind and those sails are just waffling back and forth. We go nowhere. We lose that deep feeling and conviction. We lose our resoluteness. We lose our sense of dedication. And as a result, we become negative. We become critical. We become judgmental, even rebellious. We justify our foolishness and our sin. We become respectably unresponsive and even hopeless. We become, in effect, ill-tempered malcontents. We become spiritual brats. We all know what a brat is. That's what happened to the Pharisees. That's what happened to the experts in the law. They refused God's purpose for them. They, in effect, became spiritual brats. Remember, these people are the leaders of Israel. These are the leaders who all the people, the population, looked up to and trusted and listened to. And they refused God's purpose for their life. And what happened to them can easily happen to us. This is why it's very, very important. Don't be under illusion about salvation. We want to be able to make sure that we are fulfilling God's purpose for our life every single day. Otherwise, you're going to take your salvation for granted. You may not even be saved. We don't know. We can get just enough religion, can't we, to make us rigid, to make us legalists, just as those Pharisees and those experts in the law. Just enough religion. We know what to do, what not to do. But we lose our purpose. You see, it's our purpose that releases God's power in our life. It was in response to this critical spiritual sickness that Jesus told this parable of the children at play in the marketplace. 
Look with me once again at verses 31 and 32. He says, To what then can I compare the people of this generation? What are they like? They're like children sitting in the marketplace and calling out to each other. We played the flute for you and you did not dance. We sang a dirge and you did not cry. They wanted to play games. Some wanted to play a wedding game and some wanted to play a funeral game. Weddings and funerals were the two most important social events in the life of Israel. And as we all know, children imitate the behavior of adults, do they not? If you're a parent, don't be under any illusion. They're going to do what you do. You can say to them, don't do what I do, do as I say, they're going to do what you do. And it starts at a very, very early age. And so you have these children playing in the marketplace. And they're imitating the adults who are celebrating weddings and funerals, major social situations in Israel. One group said, we wanted to play a wedding game and you wouldn't play. The others said, we wanted to play a funeral and you wouldn't do that. They couldn't get together. They couldn't enjoy a make-believe drama. Each wanted his own way. Hmm. Does that sound vaguely familiar? They couldn't agree on what they wanted, and they ended up enjoying neither game. Jesus often used children. He often used a child to exemplify the honest, enthusiastic, unequivocal response to life that he wanted from his people. He held up children as the example, did he not? He says, unless you change and become like little children. Now, of course, we know there's a difference between being childlike and being childish. Huge difference between the two. In the parable... Jesus describes the most unattractive characteristic of childishness. The immaturity and the uncooperativeness of ill-tempered brats. Just brats. If you don't do what I want, I won't do what you want. Hmm. So there. But I don't even know what I want. If you were to do what I think I want, I'm not even sure that would please me. That's true of a lot of people. Now what comes before and after the parable makes Jesus' message really clear. In verse 30, he makes one of the most disturbing statements he could make. And it's the key to the parable. His characterization of the religious leaders who had rejected the purpose of God for their lives. That's the thing that we want to bear in mind. And then in verses 33 through 35, Jesus says they, they didn't like John. They rejected him. He was too stern. He was too austere. He was a literal threat to the status quo of the religious leaders. And they wrote him off as one who had a demon. They just dismissed him. He's weird. He has a demon. We don't want to have to deal with him. 
Jesus was not taken seriously because he ate and drank with sinners. John was too serious. Jesus was not serious enough. What did they want? They're like children in the marketplace playing these games. Jesus makes his point. He makes the point very clear. They didn't know what they wanted. They didn't know what they wanted. You ask the average person today, what do you want? And there's a hesitation. You ask the average Christian today, what do you want? There's a hesitation. Why did they not know what they wanted, do you think? Because they really didn't want God. They paid him lip service, but they didn't want God. That's a tragic condition of religious people. Religious people who, who simply don't know God. It's amazing to me how people say, oh, you can know God? You can know God? Yes. But the vast majority of religious people don't know God. There are billions of people around this globe who are religious, sincerely, deeply religious, who do not know God. They have the rituals. They have their rules. They have their religious practices. But they really don't know God. They don't know what they really want. And down deep inside, there is this, as Augustine would say, this God-shaped vacuum that only he can fill. We run around trying to fill it with all sorts of things, but only that's God's place in our life and on our heart. What a scathing exposure Jesus makes of those religious leaders. It was as if he said to them, very simply, listen, you say you want God, but your words and your actions show that you really don't want God. You talk about God's judgment, but you rejected the one who proclaimed it and called you to repentance, John the Baptist. You say you long for Messiah to come, but when he is here, you search for reasons to resist and reject him. You're childish. You're not childlike. If you had the wisdom that God gives, you would recognize his truth in the messenger he sent to prepare the way for Messiah and in Messiah himself. You simply don't have eyes to see because you don't want to. You've developed a miserable, miserable sickness of religious pretense and equivocation. You don't truly desire what you talk about. You don't truly desire what you pray about. You talk and you pray aimlessly, he says to them. Jesus knew what his purpose was, do you suppose? Jesus knew why he came. He knew what his purpose was. He was the incarnate expression of the earnestness of God to save his people. He knew why he had come. Listen to his words from Luke's Gospel, chapter 4. He says, I must preach the good news of the kingdom of God. I must preach 
the good news of the kingdom of God. He says, because that is why I was sent. Did he know his purpose? In John's gospel, chapter 12, this is on the heels of his entry into Jerusalem, his triumphal entry. And he's facing suffering and persecution in the next couple of days. And he says, now my heart is troubled. And what shall I say? Father, save me from this hour? No. It was for this very reason I came to this hour. Father, glorify your name. Simply another way to say, your will be done. Three times in the garden, you recall, he said, can we do this another way? And yet his own response was, yet not my will, but yours be done. He knew why he had come. The parable of the children challenges you and I. As, as professing Christians, challenges you and I to clarify and to claim our purpose and live that purpose with absolute resoluteness every single day. Question is, what's our purpose? I'll tell you what our purpose is. Our purpose is Jesus Christ. Our ultimate purpose is Jesus Christ. To love him. And to allow him to love us. To know him. And to love others as he has loved us. That's the measure by which we can say he is our purpose. He is our purpose. Not a new kitchen. Not a new car. Not a new husband. Not a new wife. Jesus is our purpose. Each of us is called to live out that purpose in the unique circumstances and the unique opportunities of our everyday life. Jesus, you are my purpose. That means two critical things. To realize Jesus as your purpose means you must be in a personal relationship with Jesus. A personal relationship. What does that mean? It means I'm, my life is being so influenced by this relationship I have with him that I'm becoming more and more like him. You only have to look at yourself and ask that question. Am I becoming more like Jesus? As Peter says, am I growing in the grace and the knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ? He is to be our purpose. And he is to be our passion. Think about that. Whatever is our purpose, whatever is our passion, shapes us. What's shaping your life right now? What's shaping your life? What's your purpose? What are you passionate about? How many remember in the 80s a man by the name of Michael Jordan? Some of you recognize that name. What was he noted for? Basketball player. Probably the greatest NBA player, basketball player, 
history, right? Phenomenal basketball player. And at the height of his fame, there was a, a mantra repeated by lots and lots of people. Do you remember the mantra? Be like Mike. Be like Mike. Be like Mike. Everybody wanted to be, all the kids wanted to be basketball stars and they buy his shoes and wear his jersey number and watch his videos and just be taken with Michael Jordan. They were passionate. He was their purpose. He was their passion. And that's the thing that would shape them. We all have other things in our life that we've made our purpose and we made our passion, not Jesus. We are to be like him. We're to be like him. And secondly, our concern will be to discover and to do his will in all of life. In all of life. And I submit to you, when you are passionate about something or you're passionate about someone, you give yourself, do you not? You don't hold back anything. You give yourself. That's what it's all about. If Jesus is to be our purpose, which he certainly intends to be, and he is to be our passion, then we must, must commit ourselves to becoming like him, letting him change us, shape us, in our commitment to do his will. He deploys us in life in all sorts of situations, doesn't he? We report every morning. Reporting for duty, Lord. Reporting for duty, Lord. We're anticipating because what? He's our purpose. He's our passion. And we do that. If he's not our purpose and passion, you don't even think about saying, reporting for duty, Lord. You don't even think about the day in terms of, of, of living it for his glory. You go through your motions. The best of us. This is why it's so important. I go back to my opening remarks. This is why it's so important to sharpen our focus regularly. To step back. This is, why, this is why being among other Christians who are serious about God, serious about Jesus, is so critical to our life. If you isolate yourself, you just, you just, you're in trouble. You're in trouble. He deploys us in all sorts of situations with all sorts of people so that what we can be effective for him. We can be lights. We can be lights. We will, we will know what we want. Jesus. And we will want what we know. His indwelling spirit and his indwelling power. Just listen to this testimony. There's a man by the name of, of Paul the Apostle. You heard of him? Paul gives a testimony in the letter to the Philippians. And I submit to you, this letter and this testimony should be our testimony. Listen to his passion. Listen to his purpose. In chapter 1, verse 21, he says... For to me to live is Christ. 
There's no other reason to live. It's all about Christ. It's all about him. And then in chapter 3, he elaborates on that. Verse 7. But whatever was to my profit, I now consider loss for the sake of Christ. What is more, I consider everything a loss compared to the surpassing greatness of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord, for whose sake I have lost all things. I consider them rubbish that I may gain Christ. Does that sound like somebody who is passionate for Jesus? That his purpose is Christ, his passion is for Christ? You say, well, but that's, Pastor, that's, that's Paul, the apostle. May I remind you that he was, by his own testimony, the worst sinner ever? That he himself was saved by grace through faith alone? That he committed himself to Christ as you and I presumably have committed ourselves to Jesus Christ? I submit to you, this testimony should be our testimony. I consider everything a loss compared to the surpassing greatness of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord, for whose sake I have lost all things. I consider them rubbish that I may gain Christ and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which is through faith in Jesus Christ. The righteousness that comes from God is by faith. Listen to this. I want to know Christ. Ooh. Do you know what he writes in this? He writes it toward the end of his life. He's been ministering for over 30 years. Don't you suppose he already knew Christ? Well, what does he say? I want to know Christ. I want to know him. I want to know him more and more and more. I want to know Christ. Ooh, is that our testimony? Think about that. I want to know Christ and the power of his resurrection. Yes. Oh, but there's one more thing too. And share in what? The fellowship of his sufferings. You want to know Christ. Christianity is not a ride on a pink duck. You'll know his power, but you'll also know the fellowship of his sufferings. Becoming like him in his death and so somehow to attain to the resurrection from the dead. Not that I have already obtained all this, or have already been made perfect, but I press on to take hold of that which Christ Jesus took hold of me. What's he pressing on to take hold of? Becoming more and more like who? Like Jesus. I want to know him. I want to know him. I want to know him. When you're in a, in a significant relationship with somebody, you may think you know that person, but you don't know them. You should say, I want to know you. I want to know you more and more and more. We should want to know Jesus that way. 
Brothers, I do not consider myself yet to have taken hold of it, but one thing I do, forgetting what is behind and straining toward what is ahead. Woo, straining. Alex, what about that, buddy? Straining toward what is ahead, huh? I press on toward the goal to win the prize which God has called me heavenward in Christ Jesus. Does that sound like a person whose purpose is Jesus Christ? Who's passionate for him? Should that only be Paul's testimony? Should we all commit ourselves to identifying with that testimony? Passion for Jesus. There's no other way to be. Jesus Christ was everything to Paul because Jesus Christ had done everything for Paul. The same is true for us. Again, we come to the communion table week after week after week and we say, you are all in all to me because you have done everything for me. And I can do nothing without you. Sometimes we live our life like, eh, we can, we can function just fine without him. We can get along fine. You see, Christ is either all or he is not at all. And until we can say that, we will be like the children in the marketplace. It's possible to call ourselves Christians and still resist Jesus Christ. It's possible. We can be church members and we can refuse the implications of his direction in and for our life. When was the last time he said, yes, Lord, yes, Lord, yes, Lord. A woman came to talk to me about her marriage. She really came to complain about her husband. And she said, if my husband would only change, we could really make a go of this marriage. I said to her, write down 10 things you would like him to change. She wrote down 10 things. She gave him the list and he consented. He said, I'll work very hard and I will change in all these areas. He made every effort. But whatever he did, it just wasn't enough. She said to me, now what am I going to do? He's made all these changes and I'm still not happy. I told her, I ought to tell you something. It ought to tell you that it's not your husband that's the problem. You're the problem. You're the problem. Because you're not in relationship with Jesus Christ. It's easy to point out other people's problems. Easy to be critical of others. The first thing that I ought to tell you is that you got the problem. Not them. You got the problem. She was active in the church, but she had never really given complete control of her life to him. All of her religious activity was a smokescreen for her own lack of commitment to Jesus. She did the dance. She had it all together. She knew the P's and Q's. She knew the lingo. All that was a smokescreen for her lack of own commitment to Jesus. 
her husband's efforts to change only exposed her own need to change. It's fascinating to me, just human dynamics, relational dynamics, when you change, when you make some changes in your life, are you the same person now that you were before you changed? No, you're a different person. You're a new person. So all those other people who've been in a relationship with you, now they have to change in response to the change in you. Isn't that great? So how do you get people around you to change? You change. You change. Don't demand that they change. You change. See, beneath her words was a deeper desire, and that deeper desire was simply to get out of the marriage. But she was too religious to think of divorce. She finally realized all this and gave herself fully to Jesus. Made all the difference. Made all the difference, as you might imagine. The Lord is here. Do you know that? Do you know the Lord is here? He's in our midst. He's right here in our midst. Will we take him seriously? Will we take him seriously? Have we come to worship him this morning not really expecting to meet him or to realize his special touch in our life? Are we here just simply out of practice? Or we come expecting, hoping, looking forward to him meeting us and touching our life. You want to leave here today changed. You want to leave here today more in love with him than when you came. You want to leave here today more committed to him than when you came. And if you don't, something's wrong and it's not with him. And it ain't with me. <laughs> take him seriously. What does that mean? What does that mean to take Jesus seriously? Does he have charge over you? Does he have charge over your heart? Remember, the heart is what? Deceitful. It's desperately sick. He's the only one who can understand it. Don't let anybody tell you, follow your heart. You follow Jesus. You're not committed to your heart. You're committed to Jesus. He's the only one that understands our hearts. Does he have charge over your relationships? Are you honoring him and saying, yes, Lord, in all your relationships? Are you learning to die to yourself? And put that other person first. Does he have charge over you in your job and how you conduct yourself in your work environment? Does he have charge over the money that he has entrusted to you? Whose money is it? It's his money. You know what heartens me so much is that I I watch the offering trays. And I see how few envelopes are in the offering trays 
But that just reminds me that you're doing online giving now. Does he have charge over the money he's entrusted to you? That's really telling, isn't it? Does he have charge over your very hopes and your plans? Submit your way to him. Acknowledge him in all of your ways, the Bible says. He wants nothing less. He wants nothing less. Either he is Lord of all or he is not Lord at all. He said, why do you call me Lord, Lord, and you do not do what I command you? Why do you blow me off? Why do you ignore me? You say you love me, you don't love me. If you did, you'd obey me, he says. It's that simple. It's not rocket science. If we take him seriously, I promise you, if you risk with him, if you take him seriously, your life will be punctuated by the miraculous power of God. Amen. Let me read to you just his words, his own words. In John chapter 14, he says this remarkable thing. This passage has always thrilled me. He says, I tell you the truth. I love it when he starts that way. I tell you the truth. Anyone, anyone who has faith in me. Let's just stop right there. What does it mean to have faith in him? Just to say, I believe in Jesus. I believe Jesus died on the cross. No, when you have faith in somebody, you trust them. And when you trust them, you follow them. And when you follow them, they shape you. You, you give your life. They impact you. It's not just simply a, an easy believism. Anyone who has faith in me, notice what he says, will do what I have been doing. What's he been doing? <laughs> Amazing things. He will do even greater things than these because I'm going to the Father. And I will do whatever you ask in my name so that the Son may bring glory to the Father. You may ask me for anything in my name and I will do it. Oh, I want a pink Cadillac. <laughs> That's not what he's driving at. That's not what he's driving at. Those words of his should press us, absolutely press us to clarify what we want. If it's in keeping with his will, you'll only get to know if it's his will if you're becoming like him. If he is your purpose and your passion. If he's not your purpose and your passion, you're going to be confused. You're going to be clouded. You're not going to know what his will is. And when you ask, you won't receive it you won't receive it. Because you're asking not in accordance with his will. Jesus is saying to us, until you want what I want for you, does he want the very best for us? Yeah. How many want the very best for their life? Oh, not everybody. 
Let's try it again. How many want the very best of their life? Morning, get that hand way up there, girl. <laughs> then what should you do? You want the very best for your life. You trust him. You obey him. You follow him. But until we do that, we will be troubled. Our desires will be wrong. We'll easily be displeased, displeased with ourselves, out of harmony with him, out of harmony with ourselves and each other, full of reservation, distrust, frustration. But if we accept his offer, if we accept his offer, we will know what we want. And we will want what we know. Jesus will be our purpose and our passion. There was a promise that God made to the Israelites, to the Jews. Many of you are familiar with this. It's in Jeremiah chapter 29. And the context is the Jews are in captivity in Babylon. They've been there for 70 years as a discipline. God's spanking their behinds. They've been disobedient. But he's promised to bring them back to the land. And he utters this eloquent promise to them in the 29th chapter of Jeremiah. Let me read it to you. Though the context is directly to the Jews in Babylon, it's legitimate to lift the principle out and apply it to ourselves. God says through Jeremiah, I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord. Plans to prosper you, not to harm you. Plans to give you a hope and a future. Then you will call upon me and come and pray to me, and I'll listen to you. You will seek me and find me when you seek me with all your heart. Does that sound like passion? I will be found by you, declares the Lord, and will bring you back from captivity. Ooh. Lots of people, lots of Christians in captivity right now. Captivity to lots of different things. He says, I'll bring you back. Be passionate for me. Be passionate for me. You see, instead of playing religious games, we have a game plan. We have a game plan. For a truly exciting, fruitful, and purposeful life. Know what you want. And want what you know. Amen? Amen. Lord, thank you for your blessing and your grace to us. We love you today. Lord, I pray that those words would be real for all of us. That you be our purpose and you be our passion from this day forward. Thank you, Father. Jesus, thank you. Holy Spirit, again, have your way in us. Amen? Amen.